It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Hello and welcome into this episode of Bustin' Loose Baseball. It is episode 17. Grant Paulson will be along in a minute. I'm Danny Ruye. Darius Dameron is hanging out here as well. Thanks to all you guys for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this little teeny tiny podcast. 17 episodes in the books, and we hope to continue to do this throughout the season, have off-season episodes, and just try to do things that we think you guys think are interesting. That was a weird phrase, weird sentence structure, but whatever. The point is we want you guys to dig it. Keep tweeting us at Funny Danny, at Grand H. Paulson, the different things that you guys would like to hear, players profiled, minor leaguers, things at the major league level, big burning questions, just things that you want answered. We'd love to hear from you guys. Always appreciate the feedback, the rates, the reviews, the subscriptions, all of that good stuff. This is actually kind of a big episode for a team that lost four straight to the Marlins. By the way, oh my God, this thing with the Marlins. Thank goodness they don't play for a little while. That's number one. Number two, some positives here. A, a couple big moments that have happened in July. Barry Sverluga wrote a column about this in the Washington Post. Basically, this July, for a team that's you know got one of the worst records in baseball at this point, again, just lost four straight to the Marlins, it's not about wins and losses on the field. If you guys are listening to this podcast, you know that Grant and I are not going to sit there and lament and break down uh, a loss like that happened uh, as we record this here on Tuesday that happened on July 4th. Like this is a first division club that's fighting with the Mets and the Braves for a division championship. This is about process. And recently the process has had Patrick Corbin throw the hell out of the ball. Two straight starts, he's been really, really good. Not good for this new Patrick Corbin, but like legitimately really, really good. That's exciting thing. That's you know, that's something that's really, really positive, obviously, for a guy that's going to be here and is locked in at a pretty big contract figure for the next few seasons. But a major set of developments off the field for the Nationals here this month. And Barry was talking about this in his column. Number one, extensions, one-year options picked up for Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo, just solidifying things, right? So whomever, whatever the ownership group that's probably going to come in and buy this club, I think they want this all done. Maybe, you know, you've already seen a few, uh, again, according to Barry, a few different ownership groups have toured the stadium, have kind of gotten some behind-the-scenes stuff. We're looking at the books. This is not exploratory. This is a sale is going to happen. I think that's kind of what we all uh, agree is going down. There's more to come here. But you have some stability for whoever the new ownership group is. Then you offer the fact that I think they want this process to start moving in earnest. You get whoever that is approved in November once it's owner's meeting time. 
That's the timetable. So then the group is going to take over next year. So you've got some stability in terms of Davey Martinez is going to be back for his fifth year and Mike Rizzo, the best executive uh, this organization has ever had, certainly. You know, it's not a huge honor. There's been two. Um, but the success under Mike Rizzo, the architect of, of all the great teams that we have seen, including that World Series team, and one of the best executives in the sport, quite frankly. He's got a really, really good track record. We're now going to see... Again, some ability to kind of keep continuity even as changes are happening at the very highest level. I think that's a critical, critical thing for everybody. It's not just for you know for Rizzo and Davey Martinez. Those guys will be fine. They'll be snatched up the instant their free agents are, are available, especially Rizzo with his track record. He's got enough connections in baseball where he could you know write his own ticket. But it's more scouts. It's the you know the, the the lieutenants, the top guys under Rizzo. They can go out and do their work knowing that they've got some security. And in professional sports, that's pretty rare, to be honest with you. So you know you've got some organizational continuity. Regardless of who the new ownership team is, you've still got some time to get your ducks in a row. To, you know what the, uh, the big boss is looking for. You know what Rizzo wants to see. You know the way the reports get turned in. You know the way that you, know, the, you want the letterhead. You want the stationery. You want the index cards. All those different things that matter the way certain teams do it. All of these guys and gals know exactly what they're supposed to be doing on a daily basis. That little stuff like that matters, especially when you're beating the bushes, trying to find the next solution long-term uh, for a team that's that's in, in an earnest rebuild. It's not just scouting major leaguers, which is what you do when you're winning 90-plus games. You, you're scouting 16-year-old kids. You're scouting you know children all over the world trying to figure out who could be here in short order to really help this club. So that's a major development, a good thing for the Nationals, I think, uh, and, and this organization in general. So I'd also offer... The, the, the next biggest thing that's happened here, speaking of guys that are going to be here, is Patrick Corbin throwing very well. And two straight games, Patrick Corbin has been outstanding. Yesterday, scatters eight hits, goes seven innings, allows one earned run, and struck out four. His month of July, he's been really good. His last two starts, he's pitched to a 2-3-7 ERA. I think he's been fantastic. Now, I'm not ready to start a parade yet. Overall, the numbers are, are what they are. I, I'm sort of figuring out on the fly is this guy now, I don't want to say mastering, but is this guy kind of coming into his own in this sort of second stage of his career? Someone that was going to be close to a double-digit punch-out per, uh, per nine innings guy when everything was right, that put-away slider. Fish haven't been biting over the last few seasons on that, so can you figure out a way to get outs without necessarily striking out a ton of batters? So this Patrick Corbin, these last two outings, have been really, really encouraging. And as Corbin has thrown really well, again, gone deep into two ball games uh, over his last two outings here against Pittsburgh. Granted, an offensive team that's that, or a team that's pretty challenged offensively, and a Miami Marlins team that doesn't hit the cover off the ball. Still, major league lineups, he's thrown really, really well. GP, I'll bring you in here at this point. What have you seen from Corbin? Why has he had good results here over his last couple starts? Well, a couple of things. I think in two of his more dominant starts, or at least more successful, efficient starts deep into games. He has benefited from teams jumping on him on the first pitch and not having a lot of success. So if you do that and you barrel him on one of those very hittable get-me-over fastballs, you know you might lace balls into the gap, hit balls over the fence. You might slug high and have a, high, you know, a lot of extra base hits. But the flip side of that is that's not always going to be the case, and you'll run into outs right quickly. So contact right at people, Adam Balls and infielders, outfielders, and then all of a sudden he gets real deep into those starts. It goes back to, remember the outing he had, I think it was at Colorado earlier this year, where they were just ambushing him on the first pitch, basically. And I, I don't know exactly when it changed, but it's pretty clear that 
I think the idea is swing early in the count so that you can get a fastball because you're not trying to hit the slider with two strikes, which is going to be below the strike zone, and it's tough because he tunnels it well with his fastball to pick up out of the hand. So I think philosophically, hitters are just jumping on him, and if he's able to locate that fastball and either miss the big part of the strike zone or get them to hit it at someone, I actually think that's where the success came from. The problem is just because the stuff's not great, there's going to be plenty of games where you know, they ambush him, and, and it's five hits you know, through six batters, right? And they've scored three runs in the first inning. You see that, too. But I think we're in a trend here more often than not where they've been hitting it at guys is, is kind of how I view it. I actually think that's pretty salient. So when you start to look at some of these, you know, ancillary numbers uh, that, you know, kind of have you count up over the course of the season, his soft hit percentage is less than it's been during his dominant seasons. His hard hit percentage is right there over what it's been over the last couple of seasons. In fact, it's bigger than it was last year when he was hit around an awful lot. Guys are squaring him up, and that's, again, over the course of a season, not necessarily reflecting the most recent numbers, but I think big picture, the ball's still getting hit hard off of him. The the level of deception hasn't necessarily been there, so he's run into some good fortune of late, and that's going to happen at times, right? You you put the ball in play and let your defense do the work, and that, of course, let him down many times uh, during the first half of the season as the Nationals defensively were just punting it around, and you've got a a guy playing shortstop at the Major Leagues who's probably not a Major League shortstop just yet who's going to make some errors. You were... You know, not getting great results in that regard. And some of those things are kind of equalizing uh, in terms of line drive percentage. Uh, he, you know, he's getting a lot of line drives and fly balls. It's basically around 50% of his contact that's going out into the field are line drives and fly balls. That's a dangerous thing uh, for a pitcher uh, that's not Garrett Cole, right? Garrett Cole would love for fly balls to happen because he throws 100 miles an hour at the top of the zone and he welcomes it. Patrick Corbett isn't doing that. Um, but just in terms of That good fortune. We talked about this earlier. Remember, we had a good stretch. I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, GP. I want to say it was in the spring. Maybe maybe in May at one point we had a couple good starts in a row. And we were going, yeah, that's nice. We're happy about that. But look at this, you know, the the percentage of fly balls that he was giving up that weren't going over the fence right then when it was cold or, you know, when the, when the ball wasn't traveling in the same way. Some of those things as the weather, you know, kind of changes, it gets more humid. Uh, maybe they switch out the balls at the All-Star break. Who knows what Major League Baseball's plans are with, with baseballs, et cetera. But some of those things can come back to bite him, and they certainly did for a little while. But, again, these last couple of starts have been really encouraging. And you just kind of wonder – is there something to build on here, right? Is there is there some way? Because that's all we're doing. We're desperately searching for a way to get some value out of Patrick Corbin over the next couple of seasons because he's under contract and not going anywhere. Yeah, so I, I think what we see is what we get, and I don't think it's changing or getting better, right? I do think that largely you're seeing an improvement because he's getting deeper into starts and eating innings. His value to this team right now and to this organization is really based solely on his uh, – durability, and his consistency to be in the rotation. What I mean by that is it's not worth $140 million. I'm not going to tell you that it is. But the fact that he posts every fifth day, that's what he's bringing to the team at this juncture. The fact that when he posts every fifth day, he can actually eat innings. Even if he's getting knocked around, he can go five and give up seven earnings. He can go six if it's going okay, give up five runs. It, you know, you've seen him. Davey will trot him out there for 110 pitches and eight innings occasionally if he's throwing the ball well. That's where his value comes from. It's not that he's going to be particularly good consistently. Uh, if you look at some of the projections right now or, or peripheral numbers on him, his expecting batting average is 308 this year. 
That's bottom four percent of the league. His expected slug is five forty six. That's bottom six percent of the league. His expected on base or weighted on base, uh, Wobber right now, bottom seven percent of the league. His hard hit percentage, you know, which is not in the bottom five or ten percent. Uh, luckily, right now, still as you said, harder than it's been any of the last two years. You know, worst in his career. So I, I just kind of think we are where we are with him. Uh, I remember early in the season talking to a Nats front office person, and they said he's been a lot better than his numbers. And I actually do- dove into it, and they were 100% right. And their point was, like, look at expected ERA. Look at some of these things they are going to change. Well, the problem is they've changed for the worse. Like, his ex-ERA right now is 5.85, bottom six in the league. So bottom 6%. So I, I say all that to say anyone who thinks that, like, 2019 Corbin's walking through the door, I think they've given up. But even this idea of he could be a number four starter, he could really help them, I don't buy that. The hope is just he posts every five days, and when he does, he eats innings. That's kind of what you're going for at this point with Patrick Corbin. So the the big key for him was getting guys to swing at pitches outside the strike zone. Right, So things have to look like strikes for a really long time before they break out of the zone. And then when you see that enough times, thinking about that back foot slider to righties, you paint inside corner with that fastball that can hump up 93-94. He was doing that a couple times yesterday, by the way. His his fastball is a bit firmer than we've seen it. He's, his average velo has been just under 92 miles an hour on the four-seam, recording the fan graphs. He was 94-95, a, a, a decent amount, I would say, yesterday, recording this here on Tuesday, talking about the July 4th start. But that percentage of getting guys to swing outside the strike zone has crept down. It's not a number that 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 looks like it's transformative, right? It's been in the low 30s uh, percentage, and when he was really, really good, it's in the high 30s, close to 40%. Now, it only seems like a small drop-off, but I'm telling you, those things add up, and it, and it kind of coincides with his strikeout totals really going down. And he's throwing a sinker, maybe a little bit more, looking for some ground ball contact, uh, hoping to kind of have a contract with batters where, hey, you want to get a good pitch to hit? I want to get this at bat over early because if it goes deep, it's probably not great for me. And I think it's kind of worked out here to his benefit over these last couple of starts. But getting guys to swing out of the zone, it was what Randy Johnson, who you know had a, had a similar repertoire, obviously Johnson, Hall of Famer, and, and, and his stuff was way different than, than Patrick Corbin's, but that same combo, right, of that fastball slider and you not being able to tell. You got to cheat to get to the fastball, and when you do, you're swinging over that slider. You swing over that slider enough times, then the fastball's by it. Just at Turned out Randy Johnson at 6'10 was basically handing the ball to the catcher while throwing close to 100 miles an hour. You know, similar philosophies on, on ways to pitch, but guys are not swinging as often on that stuff out of the zone for Patrick Corbin. I, I think that's a huge key for him just to be able to get some of those things. That's where his punch outs are coming from. It's not coming from blowing guys away in the zone. It's not coming from called strike threes all that often. It's burying that slider, but having it look like a strike for for as long as possible. And I feel like that's what's been missing for him, GP. And I'm with you. I don't know that that 2019 version is coming back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Definitely a big part of it. I want to talk Jackson Tatro with you because he's been one of the bright spots. We had him on the pod very recently. He had thrown really good starts consecutively back-to-back, and now he is on the shelf. So he goes the way of Evan Lee. 
Remember, the double-A lefty got called up, pitched. We're like, oh, this is exciting. We get to watch him now the rest of the season. He went to the injured list, hasn't been available. Jackson Tatro, back-to-back good starts, something for Nationals fans to monitor here the rest of the season. He actually seems to have what could be a pretty serious injury. I went and saw him pitch on July 2nd on Saturday afternoon at Nats Park. He did not have a particularly good outing. Maybe part of the reason why. 15-day injured list retroactive to July 3rd. Stress fracture of the right scapula before the start of play on Monday morning on the 4th of July. He was placed on the shelf. Dagger, man. Because I got to tell you, I mean, he he did. He scuffled 84 pitches, 44 strikes. Davey Martinez brought up some questions about you know what he'd seen from Tatro, who's 26 years old, in that outing. And next thing you know, he's headed to the shelf after they look into it, and he's got a stress fracture. You hate to see that for a young arm, especially one who just got to the big leagues. But they feel snake-bitten right now, man. I mean, between he and Lee, those are the two guys that they felt are minor, you know, major league ready from the minors to call up, and they're both on the shelf now. Yeah, it it, it is a bummer, right? especially for the you know for for Tatro, right? Because you know this is someone that's been knocking on the door and grinding and really really trying. He's not a twenty year old that's that's up here doing this. He's you know uh, the window for him is a little bit shorter than some of these other guys. So you, you just feel for him. I mean, you feel for anybody certainly that goes on the shelf in that way, shortly after tasting the sweet fruit of of being in the show and having some success. And, you know, now, of course, it looks like a, a sort of a long path here uh, to recovery. But it, it, the, what I was thinking about when he went down, obviously, besides my initial sort of, you know, queasy feeling in the stomach and just how I feel for the guy and how bummed I am. The thing that we always talk about when it comes to, you know, one side would say babying the arms. One side would say trying to protect the arms. I don't know where the solution lies. I don't think anybody does. But it, it reminds me of... Of that discussion, GP, and again, I don't have the right answer. There's no magic formula. There's no one way to to do it organizationally. It seems like they're trying to, you know, maybe have some kid gloves on some of these guys because they're worried about this. But here it comes, right? It's almost like if the if you're going to break, you're going to break, and there's almost no amount of pitch counts or you know limited throwing or too much throwing or in between side session throwing or touch and feel sessions, whatever it is. It just seems like it, it's going to happen if it's going to happen. And I don't know what, what what my solution is from that. I don't know what my, okay, because it's just going to happen, we should have this protocol for, for young arms. It just made me think of that discussion is all and how we don't really seem to know what the answer is until it breaks. Yeah, some quotes from Tatro postgame from Masson's Mark Zuckerman. When I constantly see a pattern of something that doesn't usually happen, he was talking about the movement of his pitches, uh, you know that something's wrong. He went on to say, you've got to do your best to try to figure it out, and I wasn't able to today. This was right after his start. To say that I'm disappointed in myself would be an extreme understatement. He also went on to say that uh, he thinks it's probably something that has lingered for a little while. Apparently, he felt some issue in the back of his shoulder during his warm-up pitches, and he just decided to pitch through it and, and see what happened during the outing. And then after he threw, he basically couldn't lift his arm up over his shoulder. And at that point, they knew something was very wrong. Reminds me, though, a little bit of how many times we've seen Max Scherzer. Yes. Something is just a hair off. Basically call the trainer out, Paul Lassard or whoever else, and just say, hey, I'm good. I'm not doing this. You know, even in a World Series game, like he woke up. I think in that case, it was severe back pain that I think his wife was like helping him put his clothes on or whatever. He had his whole body had kind of shut down on him. But he knows his body better than anyone, and you saw that with the Mets in a start this year where he was mowing along, like no-hit type stuff, and he basically called the training staff out and was like, yeah, I'm not throwing another pitch. 
Whereas you got this guy who's 26 and trying to prove himself and just got to the big leagues uh, who is feeling something severe at the back of his shoulder blade. And yeah. He's like, yeah, I'll go out here and see what happens. And then he can't lift his arm up over his head uh, after the outing. And, and who knows how long he'll be out. Hopefully it's shorter than it sounds. But when you start hearing stress fracture, that's tough. It certainly is. And it's one of those things that doesn't get better with hard work. It gets better with rest. It gets better with not doing anything, which is, you know, so so contrary. And you touched on something, too. The guy trying to make his mark, right, trying to stick in the big leagues. I remember actually having a conversation you and I did with, uh, I think it was with Drew Storen, years and years and years and years and years ago, um, as he's, you know, still trying to get himself established in in, in the major leagues. I mean, I know it, it seems funny to think about because his you know, he's had his whole arc of a career, but back then he was still trying to stick and figure out if he's going to be the closer or if someone else is going to do it or or kind of whatever. And we were talking about that balance, right, between getting yourself ready for a season, getting yourself ready for 162, and also trying to win a job and impressing all the right people there in spring training. You're still trying to work on stuff. You're still trying to make sure that you're ready to, to be extended and go through the grind and pitch back-to-back days and get warm and then not throw and, and still be ready to rock and roll when, when the time comes. And that balance is really hard. It's really hard for for guys that have done it for a long time, let alone dudes that are trying to make their mark in the big leagues. So yeah, again, you just you feel for Tetro as he's trying to win a job. I mean, I understand that mentality, right? He's he wants to stick in the major leagues. Being the guy that's not available doesn't help that. 